Hey, folks, uh, we're back here joined by Senator Tom Begich. Hello, Senator Begich. Jeff, how are you? Um, you, First thing I want to say is you said this is Governor Dunleavy's, then Senator Dunleavy's old office. It is. It's his old office. When he got um, kicked out of the majority, he lost it to Berta Gardner, but uh, he had to leave his furniture here. So that's that's his old couch. That was the budget vote. Yeah, the budget vote. So this is, it's a, it's a pretty big couch. So I think he could lay on this comfortably. Even I, I, you know, the, the stories that people tell are that he, in fact, would lay on it while he'd have some of his meetings because his back would hurt from time to time. I don't know. You know, it's all ac- apocryphal. You know, apocryphal. Mm-hmm. But, uh, big couch. But I can believe it. Very comfortable. Know, and it uh, looks a pretty comfortable couch. So we're on the uh, ground floor here. I just That's did right. one, of, one of these earlier with Senator Kawasaki. So the, the convenient thing about the ground floor is you just walk right in. You do. Turn right, and here you are. And if you keep walking, you walk into the press room. Right, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So a couple, of, couple of the press room guys refer to this line here as murderer's row. I, I didn't quite ooh. understand that. It's know? like, what does that mean? It could be, I, I have no idea. He says, all you guys, you all got this energy. Maybe somebody's, going to, somebody, somebody, somebody's <laughs> going to jail. I think it was, I think it was either after, uh, after we uh, you know, managed to to bring up some information on a couple commissioners and things like that. So I think it was after that. that he a, lot, a lot of history <laughs> in this building. I did a podcast with Senator Keel and he was telling me about the whole history of this building. And I think it was built in, what did he say? 2029 20, 20, uh, or? Well, it was a long time ago. Yeah, I, so I can't tell you. It's coming up on like a hundred, yeah, coming up on like a hundred years. Yeah. Well, um, the building's had some, it's suffered over the years too. We've was, had to do a lot of retro. He was talking about, uh, he had this big, looked like a huge core, rock core. But what it was, was years ago, they did a, a seismic upgrade and they had to like drill into the, bottom and, and there was all this rock core they had put you know it's absolutely true yeah so it was over, over like a five-year period i guess because it had to be in the summertime when they weren't meeting all right when i when i first came down here um to i did some interviews back in 1982 i was writing a biography of my dad and, and uh, they still had the printing press in this in, you know the printing press was still in this building the attorney general's office was still in this building so you literally would walk in the front door and right to your right wasn't documents it was a actual room where the printing was done with hardcore printing machines and stuff like that it was pretty cool it's like a like a dinosaur like one of those dinosaur machines it was pretty much like that yeah so speaking of history real quick uh, i walked in here and you pointed out there's a original copy of the alaska constitution sitting here that's right this is uh not one of the the ones that came from the actual convention it's the first printing of the constitution and it was it was a constituent this weekend provided me uh Provided it to me and asked me to get it to the state library, which is where I'm taking it. But it's it's cool because inside it was a copy owned by former Representative James Noreen, and inside he's got the signatures of the first Senate, all all the individuals who were in the first state Senate, and the first state House. So they all are signed and incorporated into this Constitution. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, every it's, senator, every rep, it's all oh, right. They're all there. I Everyone, saw John Coghill. That's right. He was there. William Belts was the president of the Senate. Was Alaska Native, first uh, president of the Senate up here. Uh, related to Donnie Olson, actually. And um, you've got uh, people like uh, John Hellenthaler in there. I mean, just all these great names, people that served the state. That's f- so that was 59, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. It's, it's crazy when you think about and it. And then other, uh, on the history topic, you have a letter here on your wall, a framed letter, and it's from Ernest Greening yeah. to your father. <laughs> what does it say? You, you, there's a very interesting... Well, well, my dad in 68, when he ran for House and Lost, had been a strong advocate of Hubert Humphreys and uh, 
and and consequently Humphrey was a what we call a war Democrat supporter of the Vietnam War, and mm-hmm. so Ernest was suspicious of my dad. And are you really going to be? You know, there and he, he goes, I just want to be reassured that you will not be a hawk in that letter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty amazing. It's fun. It's uh, And, of course, uh, on the back of it, my dad, chief of staff, had written every single one of his uh, votes against the Vietnam War because he was, in fact, not a hawk when he got to Congress. And next to that, you have a, a letter kind of in ink pen. <laughs> Or I guess almost like a old old school sharpie. It's an old to, school marker, yeah. To the from, baggage children, and it's signed by Hubert Humphrey. Yeah, so Humphrey uh, was my dad's mentor. He, um, when my dad first got started, he helped uh, in politics. He helped Hubert Humphrey get elected to the United States Senate in Minnesota, and he represented the the northern Minnesota and what were called the Range or Northern Minnesota Young Democrats. And the, his cohort on the South was a guy named Walter Mondale, and so the three of them. You know, we're in the campaign together, and at the end of it, Humphrey said, what do you guys want to do? You know, and they both wanted careers in politics, and, you know, Minnesota's a relatively small state. He advised my dad, look for a better place to, to build that career. It didn't hurt that my dad had married a person who had once been a student of his, so it was for the better that he looked for a new location. I wrote about <laughs> that in the, in the biography. So he looked at Portland, Oregon, and he looked at Anchorage, Alaska, and my dad fell in love with Anchorage, and came up uh, working for the military. So what year was that? That must have been. Uh, he came up in 56, was working for the military for about a month. Then I went back, picked up my mom, got a job in the Anchorage School District, and and they uh, drove the Alcan in the middle of winter, got up here right beginning of January of 57, and the rest is history. So based on you know your dad and then your brother, and you know, you've got a pretty big political kind of family here, maybe the biggest one of the biggest ones, at least modern day. Well, you know, just uh, just a few of us, but but we're committed to public service. It's a family thing. Is it at all difficult uh, being you know your senator Begichir in the state senate? <laughs> but you're you know a lot of folks. Everybody knows your your brother, U.S. senator, and you know he ran for governor. And um, do you ever kind of feel like, I guess what's the word? Not eclipsed, but maybe. Oh no! Uh, like a shadow? Not because you're the, you're the big brother, right? I'm the big brother. I always like to say everything you like about. Uh, my brother Mark, I taught him the stuff you don't like. My brother Nick taught him. You know, I tried to figure it out that way. And but, and Nick's the other. He he's a. Uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago, but Vice News just reposted it recently, and um, his interview on the harp. That's right. He, no, he's he's really into the harp stuff, right? Yeah. Well, so he was working for the Anchorage School District uh, at the head of the warehouse. There was coming up with all these innovations, saving him money, and he had a lot of a lot of time on his hands after that, and so he'd sit down and. Uh, and begin writing this book about the high altitude aurora research project and other projects and ideas that were interesting to him. He'd studied science since he was a kid and was fascinated by it, self-taught learner. And, and he ended up uh, doing some pretty thorough research on that topic. I'm not you know, all that keen on it in terms of I don't know much about it, but I do know that uh, you know he decided, I remember him showing me the, the draft of the book and, and it had like 480 footnotes. I'm like, Nick, it's got 480 footnotes. He goes, yeah, could you check them for me and verify them? I got, it took me almost, it took him two and a half weeks to write the book. It took me nearly two months to get through the first half of the footnotes. Not a one of them was off, but I told him, I said, I can't keep doing this. I what don't the have book, the time. Uh, Angels? Angels don't play this harp, yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it sold a lot of copies, didn't it? Yeah, it did. You know, yeah, he came to me and I go, uh, I, I said, uh, so, so anybody interested? He goes, well, Random House, I think it was Random House, he said, is interested in the book, but they're going to take a year, so I'm just going to publish it. I said, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Because I've already done it. I took a loan out, published the book. And I said, well, 
how many copies did you make? And he said, well, I made 50,000 because his first run was 50,000 copies. And I was like, oh, no, man. That's a lot. That's a lot of copies. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm a musician and I sell music. And you couldn't even, you know, if, if there was something someone didn't want, I mean, you couldn't even give 50,000 away. You can't give it away. You can, and it's hard enough, you know, that that year, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning book was a book called Martin Dressler. It sold 10,000 copies, you know, so just the idea that anyway, so he goes, no, no, the sales are going good. I'm on the radio. I'm talking to people. And he sold 50,000 copies in three months of that book, self-published. And he just kept publishing it. And he started a little publishing house called Earth Pulse Press. As I should read that. I have not read it, but I should, I should read that. Have you, have you, you've read it, I assume? Oh, or? yeah, I have. I have. I uh, Well, I edited, in a sense, the first half of the book. And I'm listed in his credits, but I didn't edit the second half because I couldn't. I didn't it, have the time. Maybe you should have Mark do the second half. <laughs> that would be funny. That would be good. <laughs> so, you know, I think everybody knows in Alaska, you know, your, your dad was in the, in the plane crash. That's back right. in, or the, yeah. I guess it was the missing plane. So That's his license right there. Alaska one. Oh, wow, look at that. And a sign he painted uh, the year I was born when he was running for state senate. So I, and I, I asked when I interviewed your brother when he ran for governor recently, I kind of asked him, you know, I mean, is it, it, it must be just, it's been so long ago, but it's, they never found the plane. I mean, is it is it hard to just kind of It is. Closure? It, you never close the door on that. You know, you don't have a body, you don't have a, a burial, you don't ever have the closure that people get. And for our family, it's very much been that way. You know, and I think uh, maybe that was a challenge. I mean, I'm now 19 years older than my dad ever was. That's a weird thing to think about. How old were you when the when the plane went missing? I I, that, I always joke, and it's not something to joke about, but I, I say I was turning 12, so it was my 12th birthday present. So oh, that, you were just two, two weeks later, I turned 12. Yeah. Oh wow, jeez. Yeah. So we were still wondering where he was and that kind of thing. So it was October 16th in uh, 1972. So you you're. Brother Nick's the oldest, right? No, my sister Michelle is the oldest. Oh, because how many? There's how many? You said four Six. brothers, and yeah, four brothers, two sisters. Both my, both of my sisters went into education. My sister Michelle is the principal at McLaughlin and Avail and uh, Step Up, all the programs that work with troubled kids. And my sister Steph taught in the Anchorage School District for twenty years. So I mean, I, I guess something like that. I mean, you guys probably had to grow up a lot faster than we all did. Normally, yeah. I we were all out of the house except for my younger brother and sister. We were all out of the house at seventeen, and uh, you know, on our own, we all got jobs early. My my first you know uh, paycheck job was working at a bookstore. By the time I was fifteen, I had you know informal work before then, but you know we, we were all out doing our own thing. Early. So you know, when you for, you ran for the Senate seat in twenty sixteen, yeah. Um, so this is your first term, and I guess second yeah. second legislature of your term um but we had i kind of met you i guess before then i'm trying to think i i think i talked to you when i was thinking of going to australia yeah but even before, before even before, before then, then i was yeah, yeah. before then I, I talked to you yeah um but you, you have kind of an art you know, some art art background and you, you kind of have <laughs> a a very maybe different background than somebody who normally would be a in this in this building uh, yeah man i'm a professional musician and right a yeah <laughs> you yeah. know i do both those things and i do them i you know i it's part of my a living is those things. Whenever I fill out one of those forms, they go, what's your occupation? I go musician and a consultant because I also work in the field of juvenile justice and delinquency prevention around the country. I do community building work around the country. So I just came back from some work and uh, I had to break away from the legislature for a day or a uh, day and a half to go down to Portland to work on some of the work we're doing around community building, you know, around uh, reducing delinquency and, and uh, reducing substance use among kids. So, 
So you you ran for the seat. Uh, Johnny Ellis, Senator Ellis didn't want to run for re-election. That's right. So yeah. you you ran, and um, you why'd you decide to run? What was kind of were you? Uh, I was troubled. You know, um, I was looking at the direction the state was going in. And, you know, and we're on that path still. I was worried about. Uh, I truly was worried about whether the state had a future, and I'm I'm not convinced yet that we've solved that. And um, you know, and I was struggling with the thought, and I've told people this publicly. I said it in door to door and I said it in debates, but my wife and I talked about whether we should stay in Alaska and we felt we should double down. And so I did it. I never wanted to run in the past, never really wanted to run. I mean, you know, I never did run before, but, um, I think coming into it with a knowledge of politics and a knowledge of public process and, uh, Doing it at an older age probably made me a little wiser. And now you're the minority, Senate minority leader. And that happened kind of quick. I think it's because I was the one standing there when they said volunteers and everyone. It's like sometimes, back. <laughs> sometimes you 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 make sure you go to the community council meeting or the condo board meeting because if you don't go, then you're going to be the president of the board. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I should have been thinking a little bit more about that, but no, it's been good. I got a good caucus. So there's six of you in your in your caucus, right? Yeah, that's correct. Minority. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, Senator Gray Jackson, Senator Keel. You, Senator Olson, Senator, Bank, Olson, uh, Senator, Senator Will Olson, and what, what, what you, you got them all. So it's Keo Kawasaki. Kawasaki. Oh, right. oh, yeah, I thought you'd already mentioned him. Yeah. We just did a podcast with him. He's uh doesn't mince his words, does no, he? No, he does not. I, I like that I, about I, him. I like him. So, I mean, the issue was some talk. I've been doing podcasts with tons of legislators, and obviously the budget, you know, the permanent fund, and um, and some of these. And I know you've pretty involved in API, right? I am, but you know, it's it's tough when you're in the minority. It's a little more difficult to get all your questions on the table. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'm on a committee with four other members who represent the majority, so it's not always easy to get my questions in because we all have to take turns. But I'm very concerned about this privatization of API, and uh, I've been really pleased to see the work Rep. Sponholtz has been doing. I was at that it. committee meeting where there was many things that came up, but one of the interesting things was the letter that the deputy commissioner had written to the commissioner and a few other people and he had um referred to there was an event like a critical event that they had kind of That's used right. as the justification for the sole source contract uh, with emergency authority but the letter the email had referred to the event which didn't happen for a week um in the in the past tense That's right. And and now I saw a letter where they explained it and it was basically they said they responded to an email later and they changed, they went back and altered part of the previous, which, I mean, that's easy. If that's true, that's easy enough to, to ex explain by yeah. getting all the emails. Yeah, they were saying they were cutting and pasting it. And uh, the point is that it's not the only inconsistency. But, but if it was sent on the 22nd of January, yeah. and the event didn't happen until the 29th, if it was sent, and that's easy enough to find out, yeah. then you can't change something. You can't go back and change No, you I mean, can't. You, that's, you can't go in, in time. You can't time, time travel. That's that's exactly right. You, well, unless there's something about the Dunleavy administration I don't know about, which they're, you they're, never know. They're bending you know? space time yeah, over here. It's like inter time. interstellar. And maybe I should have them and my brother Nick talk. I, I think that would work. That'd but, be fascinating. Uh, that could be fascinating. That'd be a good podcast. It would actually get them both in a room. Can you you know, think the governor would do that? I don't know. I'm not giving my cell phone up. No, I don't, I don't do that. Give it a shot. <laughs> oh, right, right. Well, you, you couldn't go in there, though, because you're not allowed to have a recording device. Well, you can, yeah, they, did, have you, did you have a meeting? I, I, know uh, they... I had my meeting with, uh, I, had, I didn't bring a phone, but I had my meeting uh, in December, and that was the only time I've had a face-to-face -face conversation with the governor. So you were here he got uh, elected. in 2016, so you were here for two years with Walker. Yeah, um, 2017, 2018. Yeah. Was, he, was he, I mean, I heard he kind of 
be around a lot? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. You could see Walker. Uh, you know, Walker would walk uh, down the halls, and Walker would walk out the main door of the building, and he would, uh, you know, he, he when he needed to talk to a senator, and it was important, he either called you up or he came down. He came down a number of times for yeah, critical I, votes. I didn't spend much time. Um, I Very, very limited. I mean, now I've been here since January. And um, I've never seen Governor Dunleavy in the building. I've seen him at events. I've seen him at things in town that are happening. But You've seen him more often than I have. Never, never seen him in the building. I've seen him four times. Uh, once um, when he did his State of the State. Actually, I'll take that back. I saw him in the his, his press conference. In the, in the press of it, in the, his press room. Well, that would his be conference my, room. You know, so. it, but never in the, like walking around the building. Right. So twice I've seen him in press conferences. I've watched two of them. So that's two. And then I ran into him going into an event where he you know, quickly shook my hand and he was in the event for like 10, 15 minutes and left. So did, that's it. Did you see this? Uh, I'm actually doing a story on this now. I haven't published it yet, but he did a Facebook post, and a Twitter, uh, Twitter, a tweet uh, where he said, did you see this? No. Greedy politicians are trying to steal Askins PFDs. And, oh, really? You know, that's what he said? Yeah, yeah. And it was, um, it was interesting too, because he said, I think greedy politicians are trying to take Alaskans PFDs. It's funny, they said Alaskans with a comp apostrophe, and then PFDs with an apostrophe, and in that case, PFD shouldn't have an apostrophe. But I guess he's went, trying to emulate the president. You know, <laughs> misspell his tweets. That's pretty funny. It went on to say that they're controlled by, like, you know, they're. I think it was not controlled. There's something special interests, and you know, and then it had a link on it, but it was like a, um, like not a. It was a masked link, or it was basically um, sometimes some somebody will use a, a shorter web address to, to to link to something instead of having the whole the whole yeah, URL. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And you click on it, and it went to a must read Alaska story. Oh, about, did it? Uh, you know, how secret plan to take Alaskans PFDs or something. But, but, uh, since then the tweet and the post have been deleted. They've been, they've been removed. But I guess the question is what, what do you think about the term greedy politicians? I mean, he didn't say Democrats. He didn't say people who are, have taken a position against the permanent, I just said greedy politicians. Well, you see, you know, if, if, if you mean, does he want to alienate everybody that, you know, works in the legislature, yeah, absolutely does. But let me talk about greedy politicians for a second. Greedy politicians are people that set up the privatization of public facilities so that their friends will benefit. So let's talk about greedy politicians if you want. I would throw that right back at him. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he deleted it. I would suspect there were a lot of there were a lot of, you know, follow up tweets from other people that made, made well, there, a point. There, there's something uh and I don't know if you've heard this term but in the Twitterverse, it's called getting ratioed. Oh, was he ratioed? It was. It was, it was an aggressive ratio. I mean, he got ratio. It was so. That for the folks not listening, it's or for the folks listening, it's if you have very few likes but a lot of comments, that's called getting ratioed. And uh, well, he deserved to be ratioed. The sucker was real ratioed. I forget well, what, the, what it was, but it was. You know, to to broaden that to the whole budget discussion, he deserves to be ratioed. The person who would basically, you know, I, I tell people all over the state, if you like this budget, you simply cannot love Alaska. I don't understand why he's governor given his parent dislike for the state that that budget represents. Well, we, we did it, you know, we did it. And it's funny, I've known Mike since 2011 and Governor Dunleavy, and when he was, I ran for the Senate in 2012, and he ran in 2012 against Linda Menard, and I got to know him over the years, and um, I've always liked him a lot. I know? got along with and, him when he was here. I did. But it was just yeah. interesting over the course of the campaign, you know, we did a funny video about, kind of a joke video, I don't know if you saw it, it was, Governor Dunleavy talking about the ferry system during the campaign. It was this like rap video, oh, yeah, this yeah. like parody video of these guys on a boat and partying and dancing. And then it was um, the the second part was after the you know gets elected and it was a Titanic sinking. 
and kind of a, but but he didn't he didn't you know he didn't talk much about a lot of this stuff during the campaign. No, he even said like when everyone would ask him, "What are your details on crime?" What do you? He goes, "Oh, I'll do that after the election. I'll tell you about my details after the election." And it was like, "Hey, all right, okay, as long as I get six grand, I'm cool with that. I can handle that." Sixty-seven, sixty-seven hundred, right? Getting that money. Oh, come on! I was just expecting seven hundred, but wouldn't come through. But I just saw know. the article, the ADN article, where um, and I had brought this up a few months. Well, I guess when they proposed it, the the gradual payback and first thing I thought about, um, well, I'll be fair, somebody told me about it, a lawyer, is the Zobel, the Zobel decision. Yeah. Well, um, the Zobel decision would, I, I'm certain that the Zobel decision would affect And that. that basically, that was challenged by the guy Zobel and I think him and his wife in 80, because originally the PFD was paid out by length of residency. That's right. And it was challenged and it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they said based on, um, I forget which part of the Constitution, you can't treat people differently. Yeah. So you can have a measurement of who gets it, like you know, a qualifier, yeah. which is the one-year. The one-year residency. But you can't say, this person's been here 20 or 30 or, you know, they, they can't get more. Yeah, we had an income tax in that uh, bill as well, but it was only supposed to apply to out-of-state residents, and so that was struck down as well. So both of them were there. But uh, in the same decision, it struck both down. But, uh, you know, Ron and Penny Zobel were just saying fair is fair. People come up and go out of the state all the time, so if you're going to offer a benefit, you should offer the benefit equally to the people who are living here. You know, I don't know how long you've lived here. I lived here all my life. I lived here in 2004. Right. So the two of us should, I mean, you've chosen to live here. You've made your home here. Why should you be treated differently than me, despite the fact that I've been here all these other years? And that sort of was the argument. And, I, you know, in one case, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld part of it. And in the other case, the state Supreme Court upheld part of that decision. And both of them were... Yeah, I did a podcast with Clem Tillian a few weeks ago, and he was oh, in town. Remember he was in town? Oh, yeah, I did. And um, he, uh, he was not happy with that decision. Oh no! Yeah. There were most people were unhappy with that. <laughs> you know, you know, a lot of people were unhappy with it at the time. I mean, I was I was young. I was off at college, and you know, I just remember, hey, I'm going to get a thousand bucks. That's cool, you know, because that's what it was. It was a thousand dollars in the end is what you got after the decision. So, so with you know that tweet from Dunleavy, and I want to kind of ask you that you know Governor Walker didn't have a I, w- I would I would say he didn't have a great relationship with the legislature. Oh no, he had a poor one, but without so, a doubt. But he wasn't a but he wasn't you know he wasn't a he, he, he was. I, I, I know the. I know the word. Yeah, he, I can, a, I you can, can see, see it I can see the word no, you want to use. He 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 wasn't. Uh, he wasn't a guy. Bill Walker was nice to people. He wouldn't. He wouldn't tweet out something like that. Out, he probably. wouldn't tweet out something like that. He wasn't arrogant. You know, in that regard, he wasn't arrogant. In that sense, uh, he would not treat you as though. Uh, Bill Bill Walker would come down and talk to you in your office. Or if you came to his, he'd have a conversation with you. I had many conversations with him, even when he sensed that um, we were going to end up on opposite sides, even in the gubernatorial race. And he still had those conversations, and he was still friendly. He still reached out. I can't say that's true for Mike. So what do you see? I mean, I guess we talked to several legislators about the quote-unquote quote 90-day, which really never happens. Oh, no, I, um, think, well, I think we'll get a budget done. You know, I, I, I have faith in— You think it'll be the 120— Maybe going to sometime into May? Uh, into May, but I think it'll be done by 120. And I think Senator Stedman uh, and Senator Von Imhoff on our side and, and Representatives Wilson and, you know, Rep- Representative Foster are keyed the in fi- on The Finance that. Committee chair, Yeah, co- finance co-chairs are keyed in on that. And, I, you know, I know that in my conversations with the Speaker and the President, they, they have a target and they want to get the budget done. And, you know, so the question then is, is it a budget that— uh, 
that the governor then goes through and line item vetoes everything that he doesn't like, or is it a budget that uh, he accepts as the budget that you know the vast majority of the representatives of the people support? Well, I mean, now he's been—I think he's been asking the legislature to basically help help out with the budget, or you know, well, because he has well, that's because he hasn't written one, Jeff. You know, what he wrote was was a joke. There's nothing serious in that budget, in my opinion. I mean, that's that's just like, look at it, go, okay, this is a guy trying to make some kind of statement, just to put that off to the side some, and, do, some people and have, do the real work. Some people have told me that it's uh, starting the conversation. There's no conversation when you're shouting at somebody, and there's no conversation when you talk about something unrelated. Those aren't conversations, and that, that was not a conversation. When you have your OMB director look everyone in the eye and say, we don't care about the impacts of the budget, these are just numbers. That's a yeah, person who doesn't want a conversation. The, the one thing that I brought up to several legislators, and including Senator Machicki when I did a podcast with him, was he had asked her about the impacts of the property removing the property tax um, ability. She, she didn't care. And she just said, and he said, in our the peninsula, we've reduced our budget. We've done a lot of things. We have some obligations we have to do that are mandated federally about oil, oil and gas, you know, response, cleanup. And, um, you know, what do you say? Like, what do you say to the people who are going to have to pay more local taxes if this were to happen? And her response was amazing. It was like, well, we really don't have any... Uh, Thing to do with the local level. That's not our problem. Yeah, woo woo. Who cares? You know, and I still couldn't believe. I just to this day, I can't believe uh, she said that. You shouldn't believe it because it's surreal. You know, to have somebody show up on the Alaska scene however long she'll be here, and to uh, to sit there and say we didn't consider the impact on local, you know, local government when when one of your bills would remove the taxing authority for major local governments. So, you know, uh, you're talking, you know, they base their budget on taking $400 million plus from local authority. And, and you know, the other piece to this is this budget, you know, removes an opportunity to bring in over $450 million from the federal government just in the health department in, in Medicaid funding. And where do you think, which which government's going to end up with the burden of the people who no longer get covered by that $452 million gap? That's all fallen on us. Well, I think, you know, and, and Senator Machiki pointed out that, you know, you, there's some folks who want to, they want to, you know, cut the budget. And I think there's probably room for some reductions. But I think he said that this shows that you just, you cannot cut this much money. And the only way to do that is to shift tax dollars from, from you know, Nursal Borough, City of Valdez, City of Fairbanks. Yeah. Because it's, it's just, there's no way, I mean, the money has to come from somewhere. Yeah, that's a tax to me. It sounds like a tax to me. It was just like, it's like the Pioneer Home. Here, here they're going to up the amount. There's an amount of money that costs for care, which is why the state runs Pioneer Homes, because it's not affordable for other entities to do this kind of work. So mm-hmm. we do. Um, how many are, I mean, there's quite a, I mean, how many are there? Do you know? Oh, I think there are five. I believe there are five. There may be five in a veteran's home. I, I'm not exactly sure. But they're going to up the high end to 15000 a month. So I asked a simple question yesterday in the hearing. I said, all right, so you're going to get, you know, fifteen grand a month, but but if they can't pay, you, you, you've already said you're not going to throw them out. Well, yeah, we're not going to throw them out. I said, all right, so what happens when they die? What's going to happen? And they said, well, the state will attach the estate of the the person who's deceased and take the money. I said that, see, see to me sitting right here talking to you, that sounds to me like an increase in a death tax. That's what that is. So, you know, we can't have new revenue, but, and we don't believe in taxes, except that we're going to make local government pay more taxes to the tune of at least 400 million. If we replace what he would propose taking, or uh, we're going to make individuals pay more tax. If he, 
regulatory increases to the pioneers home and other things that this is this is the worst kind of taxing because it's insidious it's behind the back and it's not only that you know like the privatization of api i'm going to go back to that for a minute there's a 40 million dollar contract that's actually 83 to 84 million dollars when you actually read it and then it has extenders for a number of years to a private company out of state that didn't exist two months ago i mean three months ago didn't exist before according to their emails november 7th the day because, because of the, the election and they had the, mer- the merger too right or it was a merger of two companies but when i asked them about the 2000 lawsuits the up to 2000 lawsuits of those two companies they said well that's not us and then well, later i asked them com- what's your a new company yeah well as i said what's <laughs> your company was when did you start they said on a record october but i mean their notes say actually after the election but you know whatever and then uh and then they go they go well so I said, in that case, what's your experience with managing psychiatric hospitals? And their answer back was, well, we have this many years of experience. I said, you can't have it both ways. You can't either be the company made up of two companies with 2,000 lawsuits or the new company that doesn't have to associate with them. You're one or the other. you know. And so yeah, from my perspective, that's money. If, you, if you're really truly thinking about fixing API, look at our local resources first. You're going to dump another. You're, you're refusing to take 452 million from the federal government for Medicaid, and at the same time, you're going to ship out of state 83 million plus whatever other millions on top of that that go to this company. That is ludicrous to me. Well, and then the Health and Social Services hearing, they had asked about Providence if, if they had they asked a deputy commissioner, and it sounds like they had had some conversations. But uh, well, he said no on the record, but in fact, they did have those. Conversations. I think he said, I think he said they didn't give a proposal. But they didn't request a proposal, I believe. But then they they did have some conversations, and they're open to looking at that. But um, that, I mean, to me, that, that was kind of the first thing I thought was, well, I mean, Providence is right there. And well, he he did. They didn't even reach out to Providence, though. That's the irony of it. They get into the job, they decide they're going to start doing this work. They I'd didn't lo- even reach out to him. I think the question is, I'd love to know, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of people have ideas about this. But the question is, how did the Dunleavy administration get in touch with these people? That's the million dollar question. Because if if in fact it was through the budget director, which she has ties to the old uh, correct care with the geo group, and you know she had the same thing in Florida. She was doing the real estate stuff well, with them she, on the board, but and she had the same thing in Florida when there was the privatization of that prison, and yep. it, brought, it brought down the speaker of the house. In fact, and yep. there's, I mean, you can read it on Google. There's articles about the Easy FBI. So the the question to me is, how did this company come up? Why did they choose this company? Who that, that's my question. Who recommended too. them? Who? Ch- did they? Was it an internet search? Was it? I mean, did somebody say? Does somebody stand to gain something? That's the question that I think everybody should should know. Well, in, in the first, you know, in the first hearing they had before our committee, I actually brought those questions up because their timeline looked a little suspicious to me. And they they have this December eighteenth. We reached out to some national organization on December twentieth. Based on that, we contacted, uh, you know, uh, the company Wellcare. And um, well, well path, yeah. I mean, well path, well path, and correct care, <laughs> and correct care. You got me confused there for a second. Well path, but um, and then uh, and so I asked him a simple question. I said, so uh, so you you know here's your timeline you just laid out. When did you first contact uh, Well Path in writing? And they said, well, on the twentieth. I said, all right. And so uh, you also you know had communication with this national organization. When was the first time that you contacted them in writing? Was it before or after Well Path? And they said it was after. Now that's on the record. So would they make a phone call? And then based on that, they put an email together. Well, that's not what, well, that's not what the, the national organization seems to be in. I mean, I'm on my condo board. And when we're looking at doing 
small little projects, whether whether it be a document, you know, document, seal coating or a fence or, but even then I talked to several, we'll talk to several, get three bids or something. Oh yeah, you want to have, you want to have the best price and you want to get the best level of service. You got two things going on here. You One, you want to be efficient because actually the law requires you to be efficient, but you also, the, the constitution requires you to protect people. It's, and sometimes, in fact, sometimes we will, you know, you will sometimes pay more for something because you get more value. That's true. And it's better service. That's okay. So there's but, nothing wrong with paying more. But show uh, me a process. But sh- show me everything. Well, and that was the worst thing about that first hearing when I asked the simple question, how do you get from a sole source that you, you say you went to because of an emergency situation and an incident, and they kind of backed off of whether it was an emergency, but they, how do you go from that sole source source authority to stabilizing the situation and then putting a contract out on July 1st without a bid? competitive bid because and and the response i got back was well if they've checked all the boxes and that's the quote if they checked all the boxes why wouldn't we hire them i said because there's a law that says you can't that's why you wouldn't hire them well i think that's uh i was talking to somebody earlier and that this is what got uh governor sheffield in trouble it is exactly it a pro- what procurement him. procurement problem yeah in, in that case it was uh offices consolidating offices in fairbanks i know a lot about that i actually carried one of those files over to dan hickey a little bit of history there but uh Who's Dan Hickey? I don't Dan know. Hickey was the prosecutor in that oh, in, okay, that, in okay. that case, and you know, um, I an employee. I was working at DOA at the time. I had a de- position in Department of Administration, and one of these employees who was scared about that whole process handed me an entire file, which I handed over to the prosecutor. But that file was clear. He had taken the parameters of the lease and narrowed it down to an area where only one person qualified. Now, the thing about that is there was nothing. There was no law broken in that case because there was only one qualified bidder within the area, so they didn't have to go to competitive bid. Mm-hmm. In this case, there's no narrowing going on. It's in, in, in Sheffield's case, to be fair, there was no criminal, in the end, there was no criminal charge there because it was within the parameters of the law. It was just very, very sketchy. You know, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you, you, you know who was involved in that? Um, I don't know if he was directly in that, but uh, I think he was Re- uh, Resources Commissioner. I read a book about... That time period, it's um, John Shively. Oh, John was uh, chief of staff to the governor. Okay, but oh, yeah. he, he was also at some point, I think, a commissioner, wasn't he? Later on, he became but commissioner. He, yeah, he, was chief, he was chief of staff to Sheffield, wasn't yeah, he? That's yeah, right. that's right. No, that's right. And, yeah. and he had a direct role. Talk about it. history. You know? He had a direct role. He, had to, he actually made calls from a payphone during that time period, stuff like oh that. Oh, my God. It's really? pretty. Oh no, God. no, all that's on the record. That's all oh public. God. No, it's really great stuff. That's you know, awesome. it's, it's great stuff. <laughs> I did a, I, I actually wrote a piece for uh, the History Society on it because I had kept journal entries during the time I was special assistant to commissioner that handled leases. So I tracked this. Thing. Like, oh, so I you got, were like really involved. Oh, yeah. Too. I got the day before it broke, I got hired. And then the story breaks. And, you know, my advice to the people in the department was hey, talk to Stan Jones. You know, the best thing to do is talk to the press about these things and let them out and get out there. And, uh, and so yeah, that. You know, I mean, somebody kind of who does media role here, whenever somebody. Um, doesn't want to say something whenever they get cagey or, or whenever they they don't want to talk. That's when that to me that always spikes my radar. Boop, and, and, and even maybe something's maybe nothing's wrong at all. Maybe maybe they just don't want to talk. But when someone doesn't want to talk, it always puts up the radars. Something's going. And maybe they might not be hiding anything. But there go my advice. Hey man, just you know, just talk. The worst thing that can happen is the truth comes out. And the truth in this case, everyone believed wasn't going to hurt the guy. But in the end, I, you know, I stayed in that job, but. Uh, I, I wrote that history paper and then later reflected, did a panel with uh, 
the prosecutor, the attorney general, Joe Josephson, who was led the defense for Sheffield. That's Andy's, Josephson's dad, right? Yeah, he was uh, in the Senate at the time. And, and so the four of us sat on a panel at the, at the library. It was like a decade later, just revisiting it. Or it was a decade or 20 years. It was something like that. Anyway, we, we were revisiting, you know, the impeachment summer is what it was called. I mean, we had... He, he, was he, he wasn't impeached, was he? No. Uh, they, they, what they did is they had a... The, here, it's reversed from the federal government. The impeachment comes from the Senate. So they actually had uh, all these famous attorneys, Philip Lacavera, and they were all... Uh, th- these were the guys that were in Watergate. All the Watergate teams. It was only a decade after Watergate, you know, just a decade, uh, decade and a year after Watergate. So they all came up here and they took different sides in the thing. And you run into them at the Alaskan. You know, these you know famous lawyers would all be there. And but um, they argued the case in front of the Senate, which was in panel. They sat in the Finance Committee room. Was it an executive and, thing or yeah, open to the public? It was open to the public, and they would they it was publicized. It was uh, the press was on it. It was broadcast amazing hearings to watch the and so uh, I can't remember who was making the argument for the um, uh, the senator that was on the other side it might have been Jerry Ward or somebody like that but on the on the side of the governor it was uh, it was Joe Joseph's and he did it it's just a remarkable back and forth where you really got into the nuts and bolts of what it is to you know to govern what it is to you know to I mean it was just really amazing history that same year Edwin Edwards uh, in Louisiana was in fact impeached but uh, our governor was not. He went on to lose re-election. That was to a uh, Cooper, right? Or... Yeah, Steve Cooper. He's kind of interesting. There's, there's two guys in Alaskan politics history that are just kind of interesting figures. That you really, maybe you, if you've two. been around, well, there's <laughs> the, the people that are that were in prominent positions that nobody really thinks about or like talk, talks about much is Cooper and Gravel. Oh, Mike Gravel in the U.S. Senate, you know, our candidate for U.S. Uh, and, and he was super involved in the Pentagon Papers. That's right. He was uh, he was the revealer. Tears on the floor of the Senate when he revealed uh, the the content of the Pentagon Papers. But it's just like those two guys. I mean, Cooper. I mean, I couldn't tell you much about him. I mean, I know who he was, a governor, and he was kind of. I think he was a legis- Was he a legislator? Yeah, he served in the House from Fairbanks. And then uh, yeah. Gravel, you know, he's just kind of he he let- he also served in the legislature. And uh, and then went on to uh, beat Ernest Greening in the primary in 1968. Both those guys end up leaving Alaska, right? So yeah. maybe that's why they aren't as kind of known or maybe... I think just... that's true. You know, both have come back to visit from time to time. Cooper came back to visit a few times after that. He sort of stayed engaged in, uh, in the state to some degree, but uh, Gravel a lot less, so he stayed in D.C., did you know him or did you? I, I know them all, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I was young when I met, first met Cooper and when I met Gravel, I was young. But I knew him enough to know them. And I, I have like kind of a weird thing. It's I'm just old enough to know, have known every governor in the state of Alaska, uh, even though with Bill Egan, I only knew him as a teenager, but I did know him as a teenager. And, uh, and that includes the appointed ones, the ones that filled in after when Hickel was appointed Keith Miller. I actually got to know him later, not while he was governor, but I, I met them all when they were in office. So yeah, Hickel's kind of pretty cool. fascinating that he was governor you know, in the 60s and then he was governor in the 90, early 90s. And I, I got to know him fairly well in the 90s. I, I, I won't say personally well, but uh, you know, Charles helped him with his biography, Charles Wolforth mm-hmm. did, and uh, uh, I had a number of conversations that were pretty enriching with him, and he actually pointed me to a commission, you know, You've been appointed to a commission before, uh, briefly, too. <laughs> briefly. I was just telling Senator Kawasaki that when I was appointed to the Commission on Judicial Conduct by Governor Walker in 2015, uh, 
quickly Speedogate ensued. Yeah, I remember Speedogate quite well. became a national story. (laughs) (laughs) My old times have changed. I I told people when I'm looking back, Speedo wasn't that big of a deal. Not not a big deal. That's that's like, oh, is that all? Man, I tell you what, tell you what, put the Speedos on, you know, shield, uh, you know, put the Speedos on. Then uh, go out looking for ghosts at the same time that you're you're shielding your friends from their sexual assault charges. So it's whatever. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's the um, what was I going to say? So, anyways, after it happened, uh, it was you know I got taken off or whatever, and then Senator, I got a time representative Kawasaki and Representative Ladue sent me these these like congratulations, you're willing to serve, <laughs> best of, and it was after it went down. So I'm like fuck. It's like it's like. Salt in the wound, you know. So I still have those two letters from. Oh, save them, save from, them. from both of them. Scott's Scott, man, he's like the best when it comes to making sure that he's watching everything. He loves to let people know, thank you for getting involved, thank you for getting engaged. I got a letter from when I won my primary. You know that was yeah. No, he, awesome. he's uh, he's very engaged, very hard worker. Um, well, this has been a fascinating. This has been more of a little more of a history. Well, sorry about that. No, it's great. My background, you know, I have a history degree. I think I've done so many where people talk about the budget. And I mean, there's a few people that have the background you have and the connections to some of these uh, events and people. Well, I'll tell Uh, you just one one last thought maybe is that the first time I I worked in this building as an employee, I worked for Joe Josephson when he was senator in 1983. And so I kind of watched, you know, in my first two years here, I'd get a lot of senators coming up and going, you know, I know you're new to the building and da, da, da. And and I just the thing about it. I worked for two majority leaders, and I when I worked for the administration, all told about five and a half years in government service. And and I, you know, even then I had to be around the building, but I also helped my friend Chris out when he was minority leader, and you know, Chris Tuck, and a number of other times coming down, just being familiar with it. But I actually know the building. You know, I've known it probably longer than most people who are working in it, which is kind of just an odd thing. I mean, my first job predates Lyman Hoffman here. So that's kind of fun. Has the building changed a lot? I mean, since oh, then? Yeah. yeah, it's uh, changed in, the, in, in terms of who's here and how that works in terms of, uh, you know, there was a lot more interaction with the Department of Law because they were right upstairs and, and uh, the offices were a lot smaller. But uh, in terms of the, the nature of the beast, it was pretty much the same. This has probably been the nicest year with the legislature that I've ever seen in all those yeah, years. But back in the 70s and... 80s, it was, whew, I would have loved to have been, you were around. Yeah, I, was. I was around for the coup, man. Oh. I was around, uh, I came around the year after that, and so that was still reverberating through the building. That, that happened. Uh, in 81. That, that yeah. happened on the floor, and some folks didn't even realize, I, I remember now hearing they, some folks didn't even realize what happened until after it happened. You no, know, and, and in fact, those who did realize it couldn't get through because they barred the doors, so they actually ran through the galleries and jumped over the galleries. That's how they got back in to object, but even then it was too late. I heard a story once about, um, Dick Randolph, Ken Fanning, libertarians, libertarian, and then I think it was um, uh, what's the the first national bank? Uh, oh, the, Dave Cuddy. Cuddy. Yeah, so so yeah. Dave Cuddy. So he oh, was, was it Dan Cuddy or Dave Cuddy? Da- Dave was the kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was Dave Cuddy was in the legislature. Dick Randolph, Ken Fanning, and they were both libertarians, Fanning and Randolph. But I think Cuddy, Cuddy was, was a Republican, Republican. But I think he was kind of with them. Like yeah. he was kind of in the group. But um, there was something that happened and. I need to find somebody who really knows. Maybe you know the story, but I heard that um, there was a call of the house and there was something going on. It was important and they couldn't find Fanning and they like sent the troopers out looking for him and they were trying to, and he was hiding in the ceiling. <laughs> I, I don't know if he was actually hiding in the ceiling. I, don't I heard he was hiding that. in the ceiling for two days. There were about eight people they were looking for and that was in 83. That's when the call was done. 
And I mean, yeah, the, the troopers at the airport. Yeah, or? and the reason I know is I was over at Mike's place, which uh, which is now called the Island uh, Island Pizza. I guess is what, I can't remember the name. I think Island Pizza Bakery. Yeah, I, I, people go there. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it used to be called Mike's Place, and I'm over there. And, you know, I'm a 22 year old staffer, and I'm and I see uh, Sam Pestinger was in the state house at the time, and another person whose name I forget, and they were also hiding out. They didn't want to be. They, all these people spread out because they wanted to make this vote. So how does it work? So if there's a call, and um, you don't have an excused absence, the troopers come to get you, and they can't do it until the, they get. They can't have the vote until the people get. Found, right? All of them have to be found. And so it's a, it's a, it can be used as a stalling tactic. So I actually found a pay phone because it was long before cell phones. And, you know, I called the troopers and let them know that these two guys are at Mike's place. Oh my gosh. Five minutes later, they show up. Do they grab him? Well, they, they just walk over to him. It's all very civil. And they just say, you know, um, there's a call on the, on the body. We're here to escort you back to the building. And they went. They so went Clem back Til- to the building. Clem Tillian told me, I guess. Not sure if this was this one. That must have been before because he was in the, in the 70s. But he told me these two guys had like absconded for some reason. There was a call. And he goes, I want the tr-, I told the troopers, I want them back in here in handcuffs. And he said they brought these two guys back and they were literally cuffed. He, oh, I, 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 Clem. He told me that. So I, I don't know if I, I never saw anybody handcuffed, but I have seen people escorted back for the call. And uh, so that's interesting. I. Because Randolph and Randolph and uh, Fanning were elected, I thought in '82. I thought that was no. The, I think no. Randolph was '78 to '81. I think. I think he was. But the, Fanning was later, wasn't it? '79 to '82. Oh, you're right, because uh, Randolph ran in '82, so they were both elected in '80. That yeah, I think Rand, Randolph was elected in '78. He was the first Libertarian elected okay. to a state. Yeah, and then Ken Fanning was elected next, but Randolph ran for. Uh, he ran for governor in '82, and, and he's still around. Mike Dunleavy's a uh, constitutional. Yeah, he's still around. He's he's a. Uh, well, his daughter was uh, the one who withdrew from the border border Regions. Regions, yeah. She, yeah. she had a or da- daughter-in-law, I think. Daughter, daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law, yeah. I think his son, yeah. Mary, yeah. yeah. Lively Twitter feed she had. <laughs> oh, lively Twitter feed. There's there's a lot. Of, I, we were supposed. You were getting ready to close out the conversation. No, I was just to, I just saying. I appreciate the no. The history is great, and I uh, like the like the conversation. I have a history degree. I love history, and me too. I, specifically, Alaska. There's so much here, and I think there's a lot that gets forgotten. That, it's living history too. You, and this constitution, you know, right here, this is incredible. Yeah, I mean, Big Fisher, he's still alive, the last one, you know. I kind of want to grab it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't grab Where's it. That go to the library. <laughs> I promised the constituent that I'd give credit to Jerry Noreen and his wife and I make mean, sure that that's listed. I actually wrote some notes down. Maybe I'll take a picture. That's okay. That'd be fine. He asked me for one, too. All right, Senator Begich, well, I appreciate the uh, podcast, and especially, uh, you know, we're in former governor, former Senator Dunleavy's, now Governor Dunleavy's, office so that's a little, little more history we a little here. bit more history right here that's right so Thank we'll, you. Uh, we'll do another one of these sometime maybe right. here maybe back in anchorage whenever you like all right Thanks, senator Jeff. baggage appreciate, appreciate it, it man. Uh, folks if you guys want to do a podcast in the future have any ideas for podcasts let me know and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time Landline.